So I need you to do two things. One, I need you to open your Bibles to the book of John, first chapter. And two, I need you to pull out your white sheet that was the insert in your bulletin. I want to read this, and during the sermon I'll make note of it again. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. The same, perfect in Godhead, and also perfect in manhood. Truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with the Father, according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us, according to the manhood, in all things like unto us, without sin, begotten, before all ages of the Father, according to the Godhead, and in these later days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to the manhood. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, Inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. As the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning Him, and the Lord Jesus Christ Himself taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. That is the definition of Chalcedon. It was written in 451 A.D. During the Christmas season, we take special occasion to reflect upon the birth of Jesus Christ. Why do we do this? Well, because in this baby, in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, we have the only true God. The secular world in which you live is not very impressed. The ease with which public opinion has cast Jesus aside is mind-boggling, even in my short life of 53 years. For those of us who still believe that Jesus is truly God in the flesh, It may be tempting to berate our culture. 
But the unbelieving opinions of an unbelieving world are to be expected. What matters to me, and I think matters to God, are your opinions and your reflections. And so I ask us, how much time, how much attention do you give to reflecting upon the beauty and the wonder of the incarnation? Now, to be fair, I'm not, you know, the finger's not just pointing at you. It's coming back here. By what we choose to preach on, in some ways, is what you will think about. So some ways, it's, it's my duty to, to preach more on who Christ is. Now, that's the purpose of these next three sermons, is to help correct that to some degree. But even among us who believe the basic facts of the Incarnation, I wonder if we have, from those facts, been drawn to wonder and praise. The incarnation is nothing less than the enfleshing of God. E-N-F-L-E-S-H-I-N-G. Enfleshing of God. And if you stop to truly ponder God in the flesh, it must stir our imaginations until we burst forth in praise. I don't expect to get a bunch of hits on the internet from the unbelieving world these next three weeks. But my prayer is that you would reflect upon Jesus to the betterment of your faith. Maybe use the world's unbelief as a time to do a certain reset to your own belief. Silently, Jesus came into the world. Few took notice of his birth. Angels announced it, but who did they announce it to? A few shepherds? A few kings from afar? Jesus is not concerned that an unbelieving world continues in unbelief. Oh yes, we are to be lights to them and we are to call them to the truth. He knew when he came into this world the full significance of what he was doing. He knew who he was becoming. He didn't need the affirmation of an unbelieving world. He was interested in those whom he would call to himself. He was interested in you. Jesus wants you, even demands from you, that you bow in humble adoration and praise of who he is. Not just what he's done. The coming of God into the world in the womb of a virgin is truly the most astounding event in all human history. 
The entirety of the Christian faith depends upon this moment. Without the incarnation, there is no cross. In this one person, the distance, the gap, the gulf between creator and creation has forever been bridged. It is rightly said, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Today we're going to look at the purpose of the incarnation. Next week we're going to deal with the details of the incarnation. That's why this exists. I hope that this week you'll go home, look at this, reflect upon it, and so be better prepared for next week's discussion of the details. And finally, on Christmas Day, we're going to talk about the application of the incarnation. How does it, how does it affect us? What does it do for us? How does it, what response do we have? All those sorts of questions. But today we're going to look at the why of the incarnation. And if someone were to come to you today and ask you the question, Why did the Son of God have to be born in the womb of the Virgin Mary? If they were to ask you why, what would you answer? And I know there's many good answers to this question. But if you could give one answer, maybe the ultimate answer, what would it be? Salvation? Good answer. I would answer it this way. It is the only possible way for God to make himself known to fallen humanity. Jesus came in the flesh so that you, fallen flesh, might know God. Any other answer misses the final goal of the incarnation. The Westminster Shorter Catechism question one asks this question. What is the chief end of man? By that they mean what is the ultimate end of man? What is his ultimate purpose? And the clear and simple answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Well, I might adjust the question this way. What is the chief end of the incarnation? Well, the chief end of the incarnation is that fallen man would glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You see, the enjoyment of God is the fruit of truly knowing God. Glorifying God is reflecting back to God the worth of His beauty. And this is why you were created, and this is the only true purpose of the incarnation. And only the incarnation makes it possible. It doesn't just make it possible, it is the guarantee of the final goal. In the incarnation, you have the final goal. This is why you can look at the star and you can be full of joy even before anything else happens. 
It's easy to think of knowing God as something that we do. And there are certainly actions, when we get to the application for us here in this life, striving to know God. But knowing and enjoying God is not first and foremost achieved in what we do. It would be better to say it's achieved in what God has done. But it is equally important to simply say that it is achieved in who Jesus Christ is. You see, both the person of Christ, who he is, and the work of Jesus Christ, what he has done, are vital to your redemption. But as a whole, I have followed, I think most of us have followed the Western tradition and have given more attention to Christ's work than to his person. And as I read... John 1, verses 1 through 18, although I will skip through a few of the verses referring to John the Baptist, uh, like verses 6 through 8 and um, verse 15, I think I'll skip. But as I read through this, I want you to see in this, in the incarnation, in John's... uh, Uh, expression of who Jesus is, I want you to see the purpose of who Jesus is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, verse 9, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And verse 16, and from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. That's awesome. Verse 18 makes it very clear. Why did the Word become flesh? Well, to make God known. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. How was the Father made known? 
in the incarnation. In the word becoming flesh. Now John assumes that making God known is a big deal. He assumes that his readers will desire that. And of course we know that knowing and desiring God is only possible for those who are born again, who are born of the Spirit, who have been made alive by the Spirit of God. And unless you have been born again, you will hear, oh, you can know God, and you'll say, who cares? This is what it means to be dead in sin. To be dead to God. To care nothing of knowing God. That's the essence of of ungodliness. But everyone, whether you're born again or not, everyone should care because every person who has been created and is a descendant of Adam has been fashioned to run on God. I used to use illustrations of gasoline that a car runs on gasoline. Now, I don't know, I mean, who knows what, you know, they run on everything. Batteries, water, you know, I don't know. So, But God is the fuel for which you are created to live and exist. No one, you live in a dying world, they cannot be happy unless they are experiencing God to the full capacity that they can enjoy Him. In the first five verses, John establishes that the Word was God. He was with God and he was God. The word reveals the invisible God as the spoken word reveals inner thoughts. The word is also light as God is light in whom there is no darkness at all. Using images of word and light we see that the son of God is the revealer of God. He doesn't just merely save us from God, God's wrath. He brings us before the face of God so that we can know God. We are also told that in the word is life. It is this enfleshed son of God who has the right to give you life. To impart eternal life to you. Jesus is probably his greatest statement on this issue of giving eternal life is found in John 17.3. Yes, John 17.3. You can turn with me there or you can just listen along. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life, to all whom you have given him. And then verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. See, God sent his Son that you might know him. Jesus in John 14, 6 says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And every time I hear except through me, I have uh, sino por me in my mind. I don't know why it's a Spanish. Sino por me. Peter agrees with this. 
In 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Paul says something similar in his prayer in Ephesians 3. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, so that you may know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Do you understand? Jesus came so that you could experience the fullness of God. I'm not sure I can even imagine that. I don't know what it's going to be like. But somehow I know it's the very thing for which I exist. Of all the things that make me happy in life, they all pale in comparison to this inner yearning to know God to the fullness of my capacity. That's what life is about. And I'm telling you that only the incarnation bridges the gulf between God and you. In the person of Jesus Christ, creator and creation, the gulf between them have been squashed and collapsed. In one person, he is both fully divine and fully human. This is why John, in John chapter 1, verse 14, says, We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the KJV, actually, in this instance, I think, does better justice to the text. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John doesn't explain how this is possible. He just explains that it's so. He dwelt among us, and the idea there is a tabernacle, it's a reference back to the Old Testament. Just as the shining pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud descended over the Holy of Holies and it was a visible portrayal of the glory of God, so in this little tiny child, we have the glory of God. And what's amazing is that we all think, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful to, to go back and see the glory cloud over the temple, over the tabernacle? It's foolish to think that way. It'd be better to go back and look at the, the baby in the manger. You see, Moses who dwelt and lived right next to the tabernacle, who went in and saw the glory of God in the, the pillar of cloud, who spoke with God face to face, do you know what he said? He still said, show me your glory. Exodus 33. And God said, I will make all my goodness 
pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. You know the story. He's in the cleft of the rock and he kind of sees the back of God. By God's own testimony, Moses experienced greater fellowship with God than any other being before him. He's talked with God face to face. But you know what he does not get? He does not experience the fullness of God's glory that we have in Jesus Christ. Paul prays for this very thing. He says, I want you to know the the knowledge of the true God in fullness. John describes Jesus as the glory of the only Son from the Father, and the KJV translates it, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. The word begotten is monogenes, only birth. That's it, only generated. When parents look at a newborn baby, experience this for the first time as a grandparent not too long ago. That child is begotten of their parents. The baby is is not the parents, yet he is of the parents. There's a mystery in this. It's like, who is this? And I believe that God actually brings about our births in a way for us to better reflect upon the birth of Christ. Now the text in John says that he is begotten of God. It's not necessarily referring to his birth from Mary. It is he is eternally in the bosom of the Father coming forth. And I think some of the modern translators have been hesitant to use begotten because they're afraid that you would conclude that that Jesus was begotten at the time of his birth. And that's not the case. There was never a time when Jesus was not being begotten from the Father. He was always being begotten from the Father. Eternally begotten is what our Chalcedonian creed will tell us. Look at verse 18, the same word that's begotten, but no one has ever seen him. The only begotten Son, which or who is in the bosom of the Father, hath declared him. The idea is that Jesus was not at one time in the bosom of the Father, but now he's out of the the bosom of the Father. He is eternally flowing out of the bosom of the Father. That is where he's coming from. Why? Because he is expressing to us the Father. And the statement, no man has ever seen God at any time. See that in verse 18? No one has seen God. But the one begotten of God has declared him to us. It is sometimes argued that we are
too small and too stupid. That's my language. They don't usually say that. To know God. Maybe it would be better to say, too limited. God is limitless. You are limited. How can you know God? How could the unlimited God ever be comprehended or at least apprehended by our limited minds? How is that possible? Well, let me ask you this. Did Jesus Christ have a human brain like yours? Did Jesus know his father? Now I know that in his deity, the Father, Son, and this Holy Spirit always were mutually knowing each other from all eternity. I get that. But as a human being, as someone with a brain that's similar to your brain, does he know God? I hope you'll say yes, he did. Jesus, as a man, with all the limited capabilities available to a man, he, as a man, knew the Father. And he knew the Father so that you could be united to him and you could know the Father. This is the purpose of the incarnation. There is no other way by which you could absolutely know God except that God himself collapses the distance between you and the, and the Father. This is what John, in 1 John, says. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And why does Paul write these things? Because so that their joy may be complete. You see, there is a huge difference between doctrine and experience. But the only access that we have to God is through the doctrine of who Jesus Christ is. I've read a lot of exegetical commentaries, not only on John, but on the incarnation over the last few weeks. Some of them have put me to sleep. I'll be honest with you. Trying to understand doctrine is not easy. But I'm telling you, you don't have to understand every bit of doctrine to be saved or to know God, but I'm telling you the doctrine is there to help you to apprehend who it is that we are believing in, in Jesus Christ. And for those who understand the doctrine and reject it, they are rejecting their salvation just as much as if they were rejecting the cross of Christ. The incarnation, I'm almost done here, the incarnation is the greatest rescue mission of all time. It is great because of the lengths to which God has gone to rescue his enemies, 
Jesus' life and death and resurrection secure for us forgiveness and cleansing and renewal, freedom from sin. We can rightly say Jesus came to save us from our sins. But we must remember that being saved from our sins is for the purpose of being brought to God. You may remember 2018, there was a soccer team in Thailand that uh, decided to go after practice into a cave. And shortly after they went into the cave, the monsoon season came quickly. Flooded the exit. They could not get out. Now, I only remember this vaguely, but there's a movie out called 13 Lives. And if you have not seen it, it may be one of the the best movies that I could recommend to you. It's a very good, well-done movie by Ron Howard. The boys on the soccer team are ages 11 to 16, and their coach is only 25. They are stuck in the cave for more than a week without food, without any contact with the outside world. Finally, two British cave divers locate the boys. They are two and a half miles in flooded caves. Two and a half miles. Vigo Mortensen plays one of the cave divers, so if you haven't seen it, it's worth seeing. He gets to the boys, and he is full of sadness. The boys are cheering. They're happy. Someone has come to find them. He is sad. He says, I was hoping to find them dead because I have no idea how to get these kids out of this cave. See, only the most experienced of divers could make it through this flooded cave. There were surging currents and muddy water and claustrophobia, everything. If you've never been in a cave, I mean, they can get big, they can get small. It is scary. Four to six hours of diving to get to these kids. Most of us would panic if you even attempted such a dive. In fact, there's one place where a a man uh, who just got trapped a little bit in, I don't know, a few hundred meters, and they, they put some stuff on him and try to get him through. He panics, and they had to actually knock him out in order to get him the rest of the way out of the cave. I had no idea what would be involved. And if you've not heard the story, I'm not going to give it all to you because I think it's worth watching not knowing what's going on. But I will tell you this, that the rescue effort involved as many as 10,000 people, more than 100 divers, scores of rescue workers, representatives from over 100 governmental agencies, 900 police officers, 2,000 soldiers, 10 police helicopters, 7 ambulances, more than 700 oxygen tanks, and pumping of more than 1 billion liters of water out of the cave. 
I will tell you this, all 12 and their coach were rescued. Probably one of the greatest rescue missions of all time. There were two Navy SEALs that died, and I don't mean American Navy SEALs, they were uh, Thai Navy SEALs. One died during the rescue and one died a year later from an infection. It certainly is uh, compelling to me what, what went to actually rescue them. But as I was meditating on the incarnation, of course, Jesus' rescue of us is even more profound. But what struck me was not just what Jesus did in the, rex, in the incarnation and in, in the cross. What struck me most is how the movie ends. It basically ends with the boys going back to their lives and the rescuers going back to their lives. The enormity of the rescue mission was the mission. There was nothing great about what happened after it. I'm telling you that Jesus' rescue mission was not to bring you back to your normal life. It wasn't even to return people to Eden. Adam may have walked with God in the garden, but you actually partake of the fullness of God throughout all eternity. That is far greater than Adam ever experienced. Jesus rescues us in such a way that we are not just rescued from our sin, but we are brought to God. That's the goal of the incarnation. That's what's happening when you see this baby and you see him in the manger and you say, look at this child. You say, I am being brought to God by him. And he doesn't just bring unfallen humanity. He takes fallen humanity. He takes people in darkness that are, that are trapped in darkness and can't get out. And he brings them into the full light of day of his own light and glory. And we behold him. Is it not cool what Jesus has done? It makes me sad when I can get so consumed thinking about all the silly things in this life and I can't take time to reflect upon him. Next week we'll look at the details of the incarnation. Each of these details in Chalcedonian definition are from scripture. The document was written in 451 A.D., it was the culmination of 400 years of struggle to articulate who is Jesus. We stand on the ground of those men. But I'm telling you, it is worth your time to go home and think about and ask questions of what is Chalcedon saying? Because it is, the, it is the best articulation. It has not been improved upon since 451. We can think more things, we can, but, but the basics of 451 Chalcedon has not been improved upon. And we do well to study it.
1 John 4, by this you know the Spirit of God. You want to know where, where the true Holy Spirit is working? Here it is. The Spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. What is the Holy Spirit's task in your life? It is to shine on Jesus Christ. That's what he does. And particularly to shine upon him in the flesh. Fully God, fully man, one person, two distinct natures. That's what he's doing. And if you don't confess that, you're of Satan. Because the gospel is in the incarnation. As Christians, you struggle to know God every day. I do not expect that just hearing this sermon or the next two sermons will somehow make knowing God easy. I expect that you will continue to struggle day in, day out. But I will tell you that even though the incarnation does not make knowing God easy or automatic, it tells you that God is committed to giving you God in the fullness. And so you have hope. Like those boys waiting in the cave to be rescued. For a week they had no contact with the outside world. They were wondering whether they were going to be rescued at all. But when Vigo and his partner come into that cave, they began to say, yes, I am going to get out of this cave. You may still live in the land of darkness. You may struggle to know God. But the incarnation assures you that you will stand before the face of God. And you will experience him in his fullness. He doesn't go halfway. He brings you all the way to himself so that you may eternally know God. Amen.